Well, I'm sure it was inevitable that it was eventually going to grind to a halt, but it didn't necessarily grind to a halt. It was more like a, a bug hitting a uh, windscreen at 80 miles an hour. For better or worse, and you can ask anyone who, who knows me, when I'm done, I'm done. Oh, I believe that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Husker Du has never had a cutting room floor, though. Or let's say if there is, that uh, we keep that floor well swept and anything that falls on that floor, we make sure that we pick it up and put it where it belongs. Welcome to Do You Remember, a podcast about Husker Du from The Current. I'm Mary Lucia. In our final episode, Grant Hart, Bob Mould, and Greg Norton make the jump to a major label and dissolve as a band. We'll also look at Husker Du's afterlife and the making of their new box set, Savage Young Du, from the Numero Group. After an EP and three albums on SST, Husker Du was ready for the big time. Warner Brothers A&R woman Karen Berg signed them in 1985 and gave them their first real financial stability as a band, as Bob told me. At what point in this, uh, in this exciting part of your career had you met Karen Berg of uh, Warner Brothers? Uh, that would have been in 85, I think. Uh, when New Day Rising had come out. Uh, we were playing a show, I think it was at Ackerman Ballroom at UCLA. It's like a multi-band show. And I think Karen saw us at that show and then reached out to the band and showed interest in Husker Du. It's amazing to think, though, that you had that sort of prolific output during a time when you were like a hobo. You know, you I mean, like yeah. what, what, when did you buy your first pot holder and dish drainer at Target? Uh, I, maybe 86. OK. OK. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it's like it all happened at once, you know, with all that Warner Brothers money, bought a house, a piano and yeah. a real bed. And a dish drainer. Know, and, and paid off my student loan. Warner wasn't the only big label interested in the band, as Greg Norton told The Current's Brian Oak. We were solicited a lot through the mail. So we would get letters from label reps. And we got uh, one letter that just said, I love your band, I love your band, I love your band, I love your band, like typed out on a sheet of paper. That's all it said. And it wasn't until Karen Berg at Warner Brothers approached us that we started to consider it in earnest. And for the main reason, Karen convinced us that they were an artist label and that they would let us do our thing, which they did. A lot of people that I knew from punk rock days had moved into positions at Warner Brothers. Right. Whether uh, Julie Panabianco, mm -hmm. Mary Hyde, Joe Lenardi, Kathy Lincoln. Yeah. All fans of the band and, uh, you know, Steve Baker, who was who ended up being our product manager mm -hmm. out of the West Coast, you know, and Karen and Michael Hill, who had booked Husker Du's first show at Gertie's Folk City. If we were going to be serious about uh, going to a major label, we had to find an attorney and uh, a fellow named George Regis, who oh, was yeah. a friend of Dave Ayers. 
uh, from Stillwater days, I think. George was a music lawyer in New York of some importance, and he was suggested as a person who could help us tailor a deal that would suit every, you know, suit our needs and would make the label happy. Mm -hmm. I think that deal got signed on Veterans Day 85. There was a lot of pomp and circumstance. We we called up all the TV stations in mm -hmm. town, and we we uh, set up the big live room at Nicolet Studios, which was then sort of our studio. Literally, we bought a lot of the gear and booked the time in the studio. But we, I remember calling up a you know CCO and SDP and all the stations and saying, "Come down and cover this. It's yeah. amazing." You know, we had this huge champagne fountain with like hundreds of glasses and, you know, all this stuff and made it look like, you know, it was just so over the top. You know, and in fact, it probably, you know, cost us like 150 bucks, but, but it sure looked good on TV. Before the band left SST, they gave the label one more album, 1985's Flip Your Wig. Terry Katzman explained. If both of those last records would have come out on SST, I don't really know what the difference would have been, but I knew they were going to do it. Because they, they'd talked about it a little bit in more hushed terms as far as just maybe seeing what else, what other opportunities were out there. And obviously, once Zen came out, they had more opportunities to discuss that with people because that record brought people, I think, up to the fore of what they could really do. And then obviously following it up with New Day was, was another thing, you know, and Flip was supposed to be a, the first record for Warner's. And from their loyalty to Greg Ginn, they said, no, we're going to... I mean, that's the record that Warners wanted, not, not Candy Apple Grey. One of the first people outside the band to hear the material from their major label debut was Dead Kennedy singer Jello Biafra. Yeah, well, one of the last times they stayed at my house, it was either right before Candy Apple Grey actually came out, but they had, they'd gotten a Warner deal by then. So they were joking around that they were going to uh, call the album Fake Breakup and have the three of them shot from the back, all walking in different directions down this one street, but three different pictures because the photos had all been torn and stuff apart from each other and made into sort of a collage thing and stuff that way. Kind of too bad in a way that it would actually happen uh, two albums later. Karen Berg, the woman who signed Husker Du, had a formidable A&R rep, as former Warner Brothers marketer Julie Panabianco told Michelangelo Matos. She was so uh, far-reaching in her creativity and her, her vision. She didn't put any kind of reins on anybody. And so in that way, everybody sort of wanted to be part of it. Like people bent over backwards to sort of... Uh, work with her. And then, you know, she she signed bands like before Husker, she signed Our Straits. She signed New Order to Warner Brothers. She's brought in, you know, uh, Laurie Anderson. She signed television famously prior to being at Warner's. Another Warner marketing alum, Joe Lenardi, remembered Karen Berg. She was this intense little lady who was loved by everybody she worked with. Um, but I think it took a special person like Karen, to convince those three guys that Warner Brothers was the right place for them. Intense was a good word to describe the band's dynamic. It's also a good description of Husker du's relationship with other Twin Cities bands. Julie Panabianco recalled one such occasion. I remember when I had first gone to Minneapolis prior to me 
you know, working at Warner's, I, you know, and I'm realizing that, wait a minute, Hooskers had, you know, their studio and their office was in the same place that Twin Tone was, but they were on SST. But, you know, Bob was competitive and has a healthy ego. And I think, you know, it was always felt like the replacements got like a little more pizzazz out of people in terms of whether it was attention, like being on Saturday Night Live and stuff. And I remember like asking him if he had heard Please to Meet Me, and he said it was a cute little record or something like that. And Paul, by the way, being the same you know, would push back against them. And actually one time I was, I went to, when I was, went to Minneapolis, I arranged, um, we had a dinner over at Bob's and I had this game. I have no idea where this came from. It was called Hype and it was amazing. It was a music business game. It was like Monopoly, except it was music business. And I wish that I had filmed that because it was Bob and <laughs> I have a picture of us playing it. And it was when we were teens, and I was with uh, Paul's team. And anyway, they were the concentration, the look on both Bob and Paul's face was hysterical because they were like uh, really into like who was going to win this game. And I also remember we had we were taking a lot of pictures, and we ran out of film, and we took a ride to go buy more Polaroid film. And I went it, we went into the store, and I was with Bob and Paul, and they got like everybody was turning around, going like what. Like, all the kids in the store were definitely, like, those two are together. It was kind of funny and cool. More after this short break. Even though they were on a big label, the Hooskers remain punk rock frugal. Here's Joe Lenardi. I remember Bob telling me, I said, let's go out to lunch. He goes, well, I'll pay for mine and you pay for yours because if you take me out to lunch, I get the bill for your lunch, too. So... He was very uh, wise when it came to what money was being spent on, which I've never met another band that ever cared, probably again, about what money was being spent on. You know, their punk ethics and, you know, like everybody wanted to go to a label that gave them gave them artistic freedom, which is, I'm putting that in quotes, but not many artists got that artistic freedom, really, because they wouldn't know what to do with it if they were left alone, but who's Gurdu did? I know that much. Joe Lenardi and Julie Panabianco were part of Warner Brothers' alternative marketing department. They focused on the grassroots independent scene that major labels usually ignored. We traveled around and we brought people information. That's pretty much what our thing was. Here, we have this band. This is what this music sound like. Here's a visual poster. Would you like 10? Um, Would you like to meet the band? And they were very good to work with. Bob was uh, very kind of businesslike, but really interested in what the record stores were doing and wanting to make sure that they were taken care of. And I brought them around to stores, many stores in Minneapolis, especially everybody knew them, but not in Chicago. We um, just made sure everybody knew what was happening when the shows were, getting people into shows, Letting them know that, you know, who's who cared and Warner Brothers cared. So um, I think it made a big difference. But the adjustment could be tough for a band used to doing everything themselves. Here's Greg Norton. You sign to a major label, 
you're no longer allowed to do a lot of those things, those same things that you always take care of because now you need somebody to do these things for you. You need a manager. You need, uh, uh, you know, the, the label doesn't like to talk to the artist because artists can be a little flighty and a little flaky and they have delicate ego. So they need to talk to a manager. The longer you're on a major, the less time you have because there are more and more people that now demand a piece of your time. Hey, you got to get up at three o'clock in the morning because we got to do Australian press. Uh, you know, somebody in Japan wants to talk to you. It's like you're constantly doing press, you're constantly doing in stores, you're constantly doing radio IDs. But um, I think that was one of the things as the three of us now had less to do in the everyday running of the band. Now it's like, okay, time is, is your enemy. You know, now you've got too much time on your hands. So people started drifting apart, you know. Uh, the last tours that we did, we individually had our own hotel rooms. You know, we weren't even uh, bunking with anybody anymore. You had, now you had a road crew that took care of everything. You know, you're playing some gigs where it's like you can't even touch the gear because we got a union crew, you know. So just a lot of that, you know, and, and I'm sure this affects a lot of bands once they get to a certain level as well. But uh, with ours, you know, it, I think it, it pushed us further apart just thinking of Ringo saying that he'd like to see the White Album remastered because that was a time when they got back in the studio and it was like they were a real band again. Uh, you know, it would have been nice if we could have figured out how we could have gotten back to that as well. Uh, but we weren't able to, so. Candy Apple Grey got great reviews and gave the band a boost, but things were fraught within the band. It was becoming noticeable to First Avenue's manager, Steve McClellan. It was the major label that probably you first started seeing the cracks, songwriting, the decision-making, the whole serious nature of when you sign a contract now. I have control issues with all my work. I... I, I presume that Grant does as well. Um, you know, I think that's what really, you know, that's what was driving the band at the time and, and drove the band, you know, right through to the to the end of the band. Mm -hmm. You know, as we were very, very independent and very, you know, very stubborn inside the business and, you know, all the way around. Mm -hmm. It was more than songwriting. Grant had acquired a heroin habit. Bob, meanwhile, had stopped drinking and using drugs. The tension that had always driven the band's music was now threatening to break it apart. Babes in Toyland's Lori Barbero told Brian Oak about an especially tense Minneapolis show. I remember there was Bob saying, Lori, you tell Grant, and Grant saying, Lori, you tell Bob. So I was the mediator that night, and I, I remember it being pretty harsh and I was like come on and I just kept my head level and I didn't I wasn't like going you're being ridiculous or you didn't I was just like okay just to keep it you know and this was before they went on stage and I'm like I don't even know if they're going to go on stage I remember thinking I really hope that they play because it I don't even remember what it was about to be honest I just remember being okay I'm just gonna walk back and forth 
across the room and tell each other what each other says to each other. And I, I honestly don't even remember if it had to do about the show, but I just remember being the mediator. I, that's when I was like, no, oh, this isn't good. And then after that, it just, I, because I knew, I, I kind of watched. I just kind of like, are they going to be okay today? And I could feel, you know. We'll see the blank expressions awaiting for progression. Stand still and place in time. Those moving, they're only standing still when eyes close, close. The band's second album for Warner magnified that fracture. Released in January 1987, Warehouse Songs and Stories was Husker second double album, only three years after Zen Arcade. By now, the band was making some waves in the mainstream. They began doing TV appearances to promote it, including The Today Show and The Late Show with Joan Rivers, as Grant discussed with Andrea Swenson. I just have to ask you, I was watching the Joan Rivers show clip oh, the other day. What was that experience like for you? It was surreal. It was, uh, well, that was for Warehouse. It captured the band at a moment where the ones that eat you up are beginning to nibble. Hard to describe, but it, it was like the last of the great days. Of, of the band when we were getting the positive and the negative hadn't started yet. To me, it looks like we're all wearing makeup. Hmm. I thought I remembered not wearing any makeup whatsoever, but I guess we had it on because sometimes it sure looks like it. But, you know, that's part of what we had bought in for. That's what. That's why we joined that part of the game is because... We wanted to promote our records the way that Warner Brothers promoted records, and one of them is getting you on Joan Rivers, and you know. Here's Joe Lenardi. For Warehouse, I remember I'm not one that loved the idea of listening parties, but I would do them because people wanted me to do them and make them special. I remember the one in Minneapolis for Warehouse, somebody created a stand-up version of the beautiful, beautiful album cover. Uh, the room looked beautiful. It was um, mostly anybody that was anybody in Minneapolis was at that Warehouse listening party. It was a great experience. And the band, um, actually, I'm not sure if anybody really hung around much. I think they were a little, maybe, thinking it was a little embarrassing, but I know they did show up. Uh, but it was record store people and radio stations and fans and um, fun, fun night. And we got to play the record in a great room with a great sound system, and it looked great ended pretty much after that. I think it was everybody just starting to head for the exit door mm -hmm. all at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the last 18 months of the band was, was you know, everybody was, was going through different things. You know, Greg, mm -hmm. Greg got married and moved to Red Wing mm -hmm. and um, opened a record store and started putting a lot of time into that. I got sober in July of 86 mm -hmm. And, you know, wanted to spend more time with my partner at the time mm -hmm. and, you know, just 
had to get away from the bars. You know, I yeah. just, you know, as much as I love the CC, I couldn't go every night. You know, I, I had to stop. And, you know, Grant had gotten together with some new folks and was, I think his, his musical ideas were starting to go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think everybody just started moving apart. There was a little bit of friction here and there. Um, you know, we were doing all of the business ourselves with, with a friend of ours, David Savoy, who had moved out from the Boston area. Right. And, you know, uh, Warehouse came out in January of 87, and we were set to begin touring in February. And on the eve of the tour, David, our our office manager, uh, committed suicide. And that was not a a fun time for anybody. I knew there was unhappiness. I was pretty close to David Savoy. He had taken the bus down a few times and stayed with me in Chicago from Minneapolis, and I knew that he was unhappy, but it was kind of really personal, so um, with him, I thought it was just David. I thought just David was unhappy, and David was going to end his working with them. I didn't really realize it was everybody. So I think you know, the combination of people drifting away from the heart of the matter, mm-hmm. people, you know, people committing suicide, getting some pressure from Warner Brothers to conform a little bit more. You know, can't we get the vocals louder? Why does it have to be another double album? Right. You know, and then in the wake of all of that towards the end of 87, I couldn't manage what was becoming unmanageable anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we capitulated with the label and hired a professional management company. And within three months, it was over, (laughs) as I knew it would be if we brought somebody in to try to man that position. Here's Terry Katzman. I had a a subconscious uh, worry that it was happening. But since I liked the band so much, I tried to pretend that it wasn't really happening. Don't forget, it had been, what, nine years, you know, nine years long time for a band to be together back then i mean no band was together for nine years was the, the beatles or something probably or i mean very few bands were together for nine years just like anything else they kind of grew apart i think grant felt like he he could do other things too towards the end and bob certainly did i think while warehouse was being recorded i think he already he already had his sights on on the first solo record warehouse was a double the last Husker record, that should have been a single, a single record, not a full record, at least, because I don't think there was really enough great songs on there. Though they did uh, they did demo Beyond Warehouse. I don't know if they survived. I've got live versions of them. They had three songs past Warehouse, and then that was the end of it, you know? Ain't No Water in the Well was one of them. Yeah, it was kind of a rockabilly, mold doing like rockabilly, which was pretty kind of funny. You know, they played my wedding, actually. Uh, we had a, had a bachelor party in the entry, and they played my wedding sort of unannounced. Actually, my didn't get married till about a week and a half later, but they played there, and then that, that was in September of 87. So I, was, I would only see them one more time after that. 
their last show at, in the main room, I think, December. That first week in December was the last time that I saw them as a band, you know, and then they went on the the ill-fated tour. That September, the band encountered Jello Biafra in Lawrence, Kansas, at a music and literature event called the River City Reunion. Here's Jello. It was kind of nice at the last minute they had a call from Bill Rich, who put on our shows and Hoosker's shows, and he said, why don't we just add you on to the River City Reunion? Now, this was kind of a heavy thing. Alan Ginsberg, Timothy Leary, John Giorno, William Burroughs, Ann Waldman, and Hoosker do. <laughs> so uh, after all the other stuff for the adults, out of the opera house, out comes Hoosker do. And it was interesting because they played some land speed records, uh, I think some everything falls apart. They were doing a whole retrospective of their history, and this was well into when Warehouse Sounds of Stories had been out for a while, and that was kind of interesting. And they said, oh, yeah, why don't you do Drug Party, which was another great Husker classic that doesn't sound like the rest of Land Speed Record, but it came from that period. It was more of a pile-driving post-punker kind of thing where it was a story told by Grant, and then it was a drug party, yeah, drug party. So I started making up drug party stories, and then they changed the song to Ramblin' Rose, the MC5 version, so then I tried to keep up, started singing that, and then they changed it back to drug party. In other words, they cooked up a prank to do on me in front of the entire audience. So I thought, you know, you guys, I owe you one for this one, and it will happen. But unfortunately, it never did, because two weeks later, I got the word that Who's Purdue had broken up. Lori Barbero recalls their final Minneapolis show that December. And I remember their last show in the main room at First Avenue. And I remember, oh, God, I'm going to cry again. I remember being on the stage with my head like this in front of Bob, you know, like kind of in the middle, but more in front of Bob. And just knowing it was the last show, and I just could not. I just, the entire time, I literally was like, <laughs> you know, just crying so hard. It was just, it, I felt like I couldn't even move forward after that. It was just such a huge part of me. And I was just like, this can't be. I just was so upset. I remember them playing Eight Miles High. And I know that that's not their own song. But for some reason, that song just, that's where I just crumbled. Because of Bob's voice or something, his scream and... This was, and, and not even remembering people around me, it was just like me and them. And I was just there and I was just like, this is, this is the last time that I'm going to see this. But I, but I always thought, well, they'll do it again. You know, they'll, they'll get together again. They'll do this again, you know, because you just never believe that they're not going to. Here's Terry Katzman. Grant's health wasn't holding up, and, and I think they felt together that they maybe weren't giving it their best shot. Again, I wasn't privy to what really happened here. This is You're just getting my opinion. So, I mean, everything had just run out as far as, as them getting together and, and getting along as a band. And as far as in the beginning, there was a lot more collaboration even some more that you didn't think about that came from Greg Norton. You know, he had a he had a, a pretty strong input in the early stuff, and then of course you had Bob and Grant. And as it, instead of them being more helping each other write, like they did back then, it became mold songs, heart songs. You know, you go in that direction, you're 
it starts to change the band, whether you want it to or not, and then that everyone decides that they can do different things that are outside of Husker Du, and, you know, that's that's how bands come to an end. Well, I'm sure it was inevitable that it was eventually going to grind to a halt, but it didn't necessarily grind to a halt. It was more like a, a bug hitting a uh, windscreen at 80 miles an hour. You know, we were heading down some terrible pop territory by warehouses completion. Thank God that we got out of there with our reputations, and I'm happy for that. Reputation and the work of an artist is the thing that you cannot replace with anything whatsoever. Unlike many of their peers, Husker Du never reunited. Here's Bob Mould. For better or worse, and you can ask anyone who, who knows me, when I'm done, I'm done. I believe that. <laughs> so <laughs> in my mind, there was no going back. It, yeah. was, it was definitely done, and it was a relief, mm-hmm. and it was frightening, and it was, you're on your own now. So as it was meant to be, I guess. You know, I think the band did everything that we set out to do. I feel bad maybe, you know, when I think about how much Karen Berg had invested Mm -hmm. personally in the band, you know, she had used up, I think she had used up a lot of capital Mm -hmm. of her own at Mm -hmm. Warner's. Even as the band was ending, its fans were keeping the flame alive. One fan, Paul Hilkoff, put together thirdav.com, the online Husker Du database. Well, it started in 1987, around the time Warehouse came out, when I decided that I had enough material in hand by that point that I needed to start keeping track of what I had. The rudiments of the Husker Du database uh, all began as text files. I made a crude discography and started adding to it and adding to it, and at the same time I was collecting a lot of live tapes and decided to start listing all the live dates that I knew about. I did not get a personal computer and connect to the internet from my home until sometime in 1997. So it was only after that that it became feasible to set up a website. And by that time I had a lot more material and I was not originally interested in collecting flyers or other ephemera. That didn't start until I launched the database and decided, well, for the sake of completeness, I really ought to start putting up some of these things as well. There's been an online Husker Du community since, oh, I think the original internet mailing list started in 1993. And a lot of those people have reached out to me and provided material. Plus, members of Bob's and Grant's and Greg's later bands have also helped out. I have a huge storage bin in my bedroom I can barely lift that's full of magazines that I have yet to go through and document online. I still collect covers of Husker Du songs by other bands, and they try to document those as they roll in. In 1994 came the live album, The Living End, from tapes of the final Husker Du tour. Here's Greg Norton. 
definitely Warehouse was the end of end of the road uh, as far as the band working together on new material. You know, even to get the Living End released on Warner Brothers a few years later was was not an easy task. Uh, you know, I think once the band did actually break up, things just got worse. You know, um, there was a lot of bickering in the press. <laughs> mm-hmm. That bickering lasted a long time. All three former Hooskers kept busy with their own work. Bob Mould has released 13 solo albums to date, as well as three titles with the band Sugar in the mid-90s. Grant Hart would release four studio and two live albums, as well as two albums with his early 90s band, Nova Mob. And Greg Norton channeled his creativity into food. Well, right after Husker broke up, I kind of gravitated back into the restaurant business, having worked in that industry uh, as the band got together and, uh, you know, it was... Good money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cold, hard cash, baby. You know, so got back into that. Uh, had a band briefly called Gray Area. Uh, we did a real short little tour. We recorded something that never got released. And that band kind of fell apart. The guitar player kind of retired from playing guitar. Uh, so that was kind of difficult. So at that point, I ended up moving from the front of the house in the restaurant biz uh, into the back of the house. I was became good friends with Lenny Russo, who is uh, a noted Twin Cities chef and and multiple James Beard nominee. And he brought me into the back of the house and and mentored me and taught me how to to cook and become a chef. So I really got into being a chef. And I was uh, hard, you know, got into it hardcore for a long time. I actually went about 14 years without playing the bass. And then uh, met Dave King, who is very familiar to the current uh, audience is it's the King's speech and and uh, funny story it turns out when I was working for Lenny at a restaurant called Fagri's Dave King was working as a busboy at Fagri's before he went out to LA to do some uh, become a studio drummer for a while and uh, he just kind of remembers kind of like looking at the the kitchen staff in awe type of thing I met Dave at the end of 2004 and he was like hey I got this idea for a band I think he'd be the perfect bass player for it. Kind of a noise, jazz, rock. I don't really know what to call it. So it took two years for Gangfont to finally get together. And Gangfont actually has been together for over 10 years now. For 16 years, things remained frosty between the former bandmates. But in 2004, at the Minneapolis club The Quest, Bob Mole played a benefit show for Soul Asylum's Carl Mueller, who was battling cancer. That night, Grant Hart joined him for two songs. It was the last time they'd played together. As both insisted, it was a spontaneous and one-time-only reunion. Years passed, and almost a decade after that spontaneous night, things started to happen behind the scenes. In 2015, lawyer Dennis Pulowski began working with Husker Du's members on putting out licensed band merchandise. And prior to that, the Numero Group, a reissue label in Chicago, had begun making overtures to the band about possibly reissuing their back catalog. Ken Shipley, Numero's co-founder, spoke with Brian Oak. Numero Group is an archival record label whose mission is to discover and uncover the previously thought to be lost portions of music history. We tackle 
everything that everybody has forgotten, whether it's uh, some dinky label that operated in St. Paul in 1979 or uh, a punk band like Who's Could Do. Well, it was my idea to get in touch with the group because about 2009, I felt like, well, we just signed this guy named Sil Johnson after a really arduous process and a lot of years. And I felt really proud of us that we managed to get somebody who was notoriously difficult to work with us. And I started thinking, I was like, well, maybe our, maybe difficulty is our specialty. And we should focus on people who say that they're never going to work together or that everybody has said it's impossible and just say, well, what if we just put in a ton of effort and just a lot of persistence and came with a really great concept? So I first tried to approach Bob Mould and he wasn't, he's not exactly like accessible, um, but I went through his, his lawyer, Josh Greer, who sort of created a path, which was like Bob We'll work on this if you get everybody else to work on it. And through that, it was sort of intoned to me that the person that I really needed to convince was Grant Hart. Uh, we met in, I don't know, some kind of closed bar in downtown Minneapolis. And it was just sort of like a sizing up. I, I showed him some some work that we'd been had made, and he wasn't that interested in it. And he said it was August, and like unbearably hot and muggy. And so he's like, Hey, do you want to cool off? And, uh, I said, sure. So, um, we got into this rented PT cruiser and we're driving, he's winding me through these like residential streets and we pull up onto this lake and start walking towards this lake and, uh, let's go in. So we get down to our underwear and, and start wading in and all of a sudden we're up to our neck and treading water. And he turns to me and he says, do you know where we are? And I, of course, had no idea where we were. And he said, this is where I shot the cover for New Day Rising. And it was one of those moments where you know you're not the first person to experience it, that he'd taken several people out swimming on Cedar Lake while the sun was setting and then used their connection to his path to cement a relationship but it sure felt special in that moment. I mean, it took years. That was in 2010. Um, you know, he would come to Chicago and he'd just call you out of the blue. He'd be like, hey, I'm at the train station. Come pick me up. You know, like we'd drive around. I sort of became his driver when he was in town, took him to his show or take him out to lunch or, or, or wherever he wanted to go. And then you'd drop him off at the train and he'd disappear again. Um, but he was always really good at, at like email and there were some some really great things that sort of came out of it and i was going to read you one of them great to see you this weekend it could have been longer the meal better etc but it was good after recovering from the shock of the news i started to picture how i think the demos record should look i see a very colorful optimistic almost new wave look i think this will fit well with the material as a nod to terry katzman i think calling it savage young do is good I'm not easily amused And I'm not easily amazed Don't you do something different In 
In 2013, Numero reissued the Statues and Amusement single for Record Store Day. Then in 2015, a breakthrough occurred. There had been talk with the other guys about projects. You know, what, what, what can we do? What assets do we have? What can we cobble together to make something, you know, something that would be interesting for the fans? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that we have all these early demos. We have different live recordings. We've got, you know, B-sides. Mm-hmm. So that's what we ended up with as our asset list. And there was a couple different ideas I think I remember mentioning to Dennis, I said, you know, I said, I think those guys in Chicago want to do something. If that works for everybody, I, I think they would do anything we want to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dennis reached out, and sure enough, they were very, very interested in, in all these different assets that we had compiled uh, through Dennis. And that started the, the project in motion a couple of years ago. You know, I had copies of all the material that, is appearing on the box. So, cool. Uh, you know, whether it was through, you know, my personal archive, whether it was through Terry Katzman, who mm-hmm. was incredibly generous and a, you know, a, a key part of, of gathering all these assets together. A lot of them were Terry's. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've had this stuff for years and I've listened to it and, you know, I, I know these songs and um, it all seemed to make sense to me. I think, you know, the, I think the three members of the band all had, you know, varying ideas about how to put it together. You know, and, and Numero, you know, every, you know, I think people are familiar with their MO as far as, you know, these sort of classic box sets, mm-hmm. you know, these historical markers that come with books and, you know, a, lo- a lot of unheard music. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it seemed to be, you know, it seemed with the assets we had and what their specialty was, it, it, it was a pretty good fit. Uh, the deal was easy to put together. It was real quick and clean. There's, mm-hmm. you know, these days record deals are nowhere as complicated as they used to be. Right. And just excited that it's coming because this has been a long, long time coming. From <laughs> we've gone through many different uh, permutations, shall we say, to get this thing out, starting almost 15 years ago. I mean, the the papers on this project weren't even signed until, like, before Thanksgiving last year. That took two years. Well, it definitely is is like all of the the early demos. So the the very first demo we did, the, which was uh, referred to as the Mac Bruce demo. So we recorded it Janet Wallace Hall and McAllister, and then uh, finished it at a guy's uh, named Bill Bruce in his basement studio, and some demo work that we did in the basement of Northern Lights. And a lot of this stuff was you know recorded on not real sophisticated recording material. We're talking maybe four track or or maybe two track cassette. They were able to take all of this material over to uh, Steve Albini's studio in Chicago and exactly how they sit down and are able to take it apart and and put it back together again, I'm not even real sure about, but it it sounds spectacular. You know, the remastering of this Husker stuff is incredible. I mean, you can hear everything. There's no high-end wash. Uh, There's bass. There's, I mean, it sounds great. 
Husker du has never had a cutting room floor, though. Or let's say if there is, that uh, we keep that floor well swept and anything that falls on that floor, we make sure that we pick it up and put it where it belongs. Grant had liver cancer. On July 1st, 2017, he was scheduled to play with Minneapolis's Rank Strangers at the Hook and Ladder Theater. But the billing was a trick. It was actually a tribute to Grant, convened in secret by Lori Barbero. It included appearances by Run Westy Run, Soul Asylum's Dave Perner, Greg Norton's current band Porcupine, as well as Grant. The current's Yua Vang covered the show. So towards the end of the night, everybody got off stage and it was time for Grant's set. And we weren't even sure that he was going to play just because it was getting so late and it was getting to close to 1231 in the morning. But he got on stage and he was so excited to be there. It was just him and his electric guitar and it was so moving and it was so quiet in the room. And there's a few times where he would like be unable to play chords or he couldn't remember lyrics to a lot of stuff and he'd always you know people would shout at him hey you're doing great keep going you know everybody knew something was happening with him but they were respectful of that and he just didn't want that he wanted people to understand that he was still pushing through and he just said you know what your encouragement is needed but it's not necessary and Towards the end of the night, he was playing and playing, and he said he had two more songs left, but you could feel he didn't want to leave the stage at all. He's like, I want to stick around. I want to be here. And he pushed through at least four more songs, and his fingers were just done at the end of the night. So he's like, you know, I'll see you a little bit further down the road. Is the sky the limit? What is the apogee? Is the sky the limit for me? Grant spoke about the evening with Andrea Swenson in August. That was a very uh, intense evening at Hook and Ladder. What was that night like for you? Oh, man, the seeds of distrust that were sown that evening. I totally expected a run-of-the-mill average gig. The rank strangers were warming up. Okay, plain and simple. Bridget informs me when she picks me up to go down to the club. She tells me that they can't open up the club until 8 o'clock. 
And so we go out to eat, and about 7.30, we're looking for the way out of the parking. Bridget's like, okay, give me the parking ticket. And it's like, I don't have it, you do. <laughs> and it turns up she had, like, mangled it and thrown it away. She goes, she finds it, it fits in the machine, it works fine. We get down to the club, I'm parking, and there's one fellow that steps outside, and I say, hey, what's going on? Meanwhile, I'm thinking there's like two people inside there. And he's like, nothing but a whole lot of people that are anxious to see you. And I'm like, that's odd. I carry my guitar in, and it's like this sea of faces turning to me with uh, great affection. There's not too many big surprises that have been successfully thrown at me, but that was definitely one. The Hook and Ladder Show was one of Grant's last public appearances before he passed away on September 13th a week after Numero Group announced the Savage Young Do box set. As a matter of fact, they took 1,500 pre-orders in 10 hours and it crashed their site twice. And what was Huskerdu's legacy? Sonia Grover of First Avenue, along with others, weighed in. You know, right after Grant Hart passed, you'd see sort of the outpouring from so many artists, national, international artists, about the influence he and Bob and Greg had on their music. But, um... There's like a wide gamut of musicians and not necessarily, you know, a huge range of genres, but like from like 18 year olds to like 60 year olds and everyone in between. Certainly there's a lot of great, great bands and great records from the 80s, but there was an ambition and a drive in Husker Du that was inspirational. And I, I think part of that is the sheer tension between uh, Grant Hart and Bob Malt. They stirred each other up. And I think a lot of people in the legacy of Warner Brothers Records uh, and and Husker Du, it definitely helped us get a lot of great artists to that label, including R.E.M., probably Dinosaur Jr., probably the Creation uh, Records label, uh, probably a lot of uh, artists we got came to Warner Brothers, you know, they'd go from office to office and you'd sit down with them and talk to them and tell them all the wonderful things that were going on at the label. And then you'd let them raid your closet so they'd see, you know, all the great stuff we had. I started playing drums and never, never took lessons, self-taught, but I played barefoot and I, Grant played barefoot. So I guess I thought that that was maybe, I didn't think that was the way that you were supposed to play, but I just did because I thought, man, if Grant plays barefoot, that's the way that you play because he's one bad wamba jamba. We were huge music fans. We were students. We took everything in. We made it our own unique voice. And I think it changed the world for a select group of people. It certainly did not change the entire world of pop music, but I think for people who were affected by it, there was nothing before and after. It was it was that band and and you know for for you know decades after the fact, it's again eternally grateful for that experience for being able to work with Grant and work with Greg and all of the different people along the way that 
that gave a lot of blood and a lot of energy to get that rocket ship up in the air. You know, it, it, it's really, it's just unbelievable when I think about it, you know, what the, what it meant to everybody that was involved and, and the fact that, you know, now 30 years later, there's this box set and, you know, this is like the weird family photos that nobody was supposed to see. (laughs) Yes. So, so it's sort of cool. You know, I think it'll be great for people because, you know, I, I always think about music like fo- like photographs, like photo albums. Mm-hmm. You know, you t- you know, you take a thousand pictures on your vacation, but you only show people 10 or 12. Exactly. Right? I never get tired of people telling me that they're a fan of the band. I, it's greatly appreciated. And I'm, I'm always very uh, thankful and grateful to hear that. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things looking back in the past. It's I, I have no re regrets being in this band, you know, um, wouldn't trade the experience for anything. And uh, I'm happy that people are still discovering us. I think the band is actually more popular today than than when we broke up. You know, a couple of years after the band was broken up, it was like, eh, you're in a band called Who's Crew, big deal. You know, now today it's like, wow, you're in a band called Who's Crew, that's a big deal. This has been part five of Do You Remember, a podcast about Husker Du from The Current. I'm Mary Lucia. Thanks for listening. Do You Remember was written by Michelangelo Matos, edited by Anna Reed, produced by David Safar, engineered by Michael DeMarc, and directed by Brett Baldwin. Brian Oak and Andrea Swenson contributed interviews to this episode. Special thanks to our guests, Lori Barbero, Jello Biafra, Paul Hilkoff, Terry Katzman, Joe Lenardi, Steve McClellan, Julie Panabianco, Henry Rollins, Ken Shipley, Yua Vang, and the members of Husker Du. You can find the music from this episode on Savage Young Du from the Numero Group and Candy Apple Gray, Warehouse, Songs and Stories, and The Living End, all from Warner Brothers. This podcast is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. I'm Mary Lucia. This has been Do You Remember from the Current. Do you remember?